I'm going to dive into today straight in because I've got quite a bit of ground to cover and I hope I can do this some sort of justice. But the last few weeks we've been looking at a series where we've thought of the concept of you can have right beliefs, you can think the right things, believe the right things, but if your imagination, the way that you see those things in your mind is, is tainted by other images, then uh, even with right belief, you can end up with wrong behaviour or, you know, wrong speaking, wrong... Literally, you can reverse your thinking and you're actually... You start off thinking right, but you're thinking all wrong, if you know what I mean. And so uh, we've we've looked at that uh, over the last couple of weeks. And last week we looked at what the hell is heaven? And just maybe some of the distorted images that we pick up about just what heaven might be. Some, sometimes the childish images, the simplistic images. And the fact is that often our images of the eternal are based far more on pop art than what they are on scripture. We don't mean to do that, but we tend to filter scripture through what we already see in our mind because we saw, you know, uh, Dante's Inferno or something like that. And it just frames our thinking. And so uh, today I want to move this along to another level and, uh, and have a look at the next topic. You know, the carrot and the stick is a metaphor for the use of a combination of reward and punishment to get people to respond or to do something obediently. The carrot and the stick, we all know about it. And who's ever noticed that some people seem to respond to the stick better than the carrot? Like, why is that? I mean, why wouldn't you want the carrot? But I guess human nature, that tends to be us. Um, And I think that's why we're tempted to use it. The carrot and the stick method. Come on, parents, don't look at me like you're totally innocent. But we use the carrot and the stick. The thought of there is a reward and there is also a punishment depending on which choice you make. I think we all think a little bit this way. I said last week, I didn't follow Jesus. I didn't begin following Jesus because I love Jesus. I didn't know Jesus, but what was encroaching on my thinking was a sense of uh, punishment for wrongdoing. Uh, in my simple thinking at that time, uh, there, you know, there was literally, I couldn't have articulated it this well, but there was a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And, um, and so for me, uh, the stick was very, very compelling. And then after I began following Jesus, then of course I began to love him when I realised what he had done for me and what he was doing in my heart and in my life. And so it's all good. Heaven versus hell should be a no-brainer. It is for seven of us, which is awesome. Uh, You know, the problem is, is that when we, uh, we imagine that that's the way God thinks, that becomes the problem, that God is the carrot and stick God. And there's probably many cultural cues that give us this, going back again to mental imagery. I'm going to look at some pictures. We're going to start again with Renaissance art and go back a little bit. Um, but uh, here we go. There's a, there's a Renaissance painting. I think it's uh, 13th, uh, 13th century or 16th century, something like that. Uh, that's not a nice image, is it? If you're thinking about hell, uh, can we have one of the fire photos? Or, oh, here we go. No, there we go. There's Renaissance art again. Uh, some nudies in there like there normally is with Renaissance art, but we can cope, can't we? Because we're mature. Uh, and then there you go. There's a classic image of maybe the stick, if you know what I mean. Uh, and certainly there's images in scripture 
of fire and of punishment and all kinds of things. So I want to tease this out a little bit today. Uh, I want to talk about what the heaven is hell. Okay. What's that one? Oh, yeah. Okay. What the heavens is hell. Oh, I missed meatloaf. Sorry. Like, um, I'll come back to meatloaf, but think about meatloaf. Like, who, who was old enough... To have a meatloaf album, Dale White, right there, yeah, yeah. He, and don't be so, don't be so happy about that, Dale. Like, you seem a bit keen still. Uh, Bad out of hell, huge al- album, and uh, pop art. But interestingly enough, even the, you know, even the world is thinking that hell is somewhere below our th- feet in that image. I'll come back to it a little bit later. Uh, so yes, I am that preacher. We're going to talk about hell today. Actually, when Dale and Wendy and their guests arrived today, I said, you've come to church on a really bad day. (laughs) I don't think I've ever preached on hell before, but I'm gonna. And uh, so, yes, you are. You're in that service and I am that preacher. Uh, But uh, let's see how we go. Today, I just want to say from the outset, I don't want to bring a different view. Um, I want to bring a broader view. And I think I was hoping to achieve that last week with heaven. Not a different picture of heaven, but a broader picture of heaven. I wasn't saying something else. I was saying it might be more than what you think. Multifaceted. The whole concept of live it now so when you step into eternity, it's not unfamiliar to you. Because for some people, heaven might not be as much fun as they think. Uh, and we won't go back into that message. Hell, I think, is, you know, we've got to address it in the same way because a very simplistic, one-dimensional view gives a wrong impression and often a poor picture of God. Any theology that paints God as torturer rather than rescuer, in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, should stand out as there's something wrong with that to us. What troubles me is that most of the time it doesn't. We tend to be able to embrace that paradox without even really thinking it through very deeply. And uh, anyway, and I'll keep going. Interestingly, just to give a bit of background, in the creation story, uh, we see heaven prefigured. uh, And we see it all through scripture. We see the whole story of of God and man begins with God and man in a garden and the whole story of God and man through all the ages ends with a picture of God and man in the garden. Heaven is prefigured in creation. Interestingly, hell isn't. It's not, if I can put it this way, it doesn't seem to be in the original design, the original intent. It wasn't like there, there, is a, you know, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun from, the day, from day one. It wasn't that. It seems to be far more a response. And lots of theologians have got different ideas of explaining this, etc. And I always get wary of really complex theology. So if you have to explain it that hard, if you have to make such a case, then maybe, uh, maybe you should take a simpler view of that. Um, It's like quite a few things in the Bible. You know, hell, I think. Just because they're there doesn't mean God wants them. This is why when people say, it's in the Bible, that doesn't mean they're representing God well at all. 
rape, incest and adultery are in the Bible. Violence, greed and murder are in the Bible. I mean, are they, aren't they? You've gone all quiet. Like, oh, I didn't think that was in the Bible. Oh, come on! (laughs) So is purity, integrity and love. And peace and generosity and freedom. All of these concepts are found in the Bible and, and we've been given clear cues as to what God champions and what he calls us, calls us to avoid. Matthew 25 actually tells us why. Jesus tells us why directly hell was eventually, not created, different Greek word, prepared. Not created, and I've even heard some commentators, some, some preachers, whatever, God created, no he didn't. Different word. He prepared a place. It wasn't in the original creation as far as I can see. And he, Jesus tells us why. It was created for the devil and for fallen angels. Uh, and if that seems harsh, and I guess the theology behind that, Jesus said you've got to be born of water, born of the spirit, to see the kingdom of heaven. Angels are individually created beings. So to redeem a fallen angel, then Jesus would have had to die for each one of them. Whereas we are all in Adam, so therefore the first Adam sinned and fell and now the second Adam, Christ, has come and everyone who places their faith in him shall be saved. Does that, does that, so there's this thought, but here's the scary part, in the context of that passage, um, Jesus said it's been prepared for the devil and his angels and if you read the whole context of Matthew 25, it would seem to say, and for people who are discompassionate, for the concerns and the needs of those who are in a difficult place. That's the context. It's like, oh, for the devil and his angels, of course, and anyone who is discompassionate about the needs of humanity. So just being honest, that's why Jesus says hell was literally prepared. And he was talking to covenant people at the time. So he wasn't talking to how sometimes we might think Outside, He was talking to inside. So for Jesus, the way that we lived our lives and what we did with the life we've been given was a major compelling point for our eternal experience. So a, 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 here's some similarities, I guess, with heaven. Uh, it's not only someplace else, but a state of experience. And at least on one, one level, hell right here the thought it's below our feet somewhere is a caricature like meatloaf I mean hopefully we understand that's an artist's impression and and what has happened is that between Jewish some current Jewish thinking of uh, you know through the ages and Greek mythology and you get 2 plus 2 equals 15 and all of a sudden we're thinking that that hell is a place down there somewhere and uh I'm not really sure that there's a guy in a red suit under the earth's crust anywhere that I can think of. Let's have a look at what scripture actually says and what it talks about. It uses three different words for the word hell. This is unfortunate because we translate them all hell, yet they've got very different concepts and di- different meanings. The first word is Tartarus. Tartarus is a word that's borrowed from Greek mythology. It's only used once in scripture in 2 Peter. And Peter is talking about the the eternal judgment of fallen angels that are chained in darkness forever. And that was the whole concept 
of Tartarus. It was a deep abyss and a dungeon, literally, where, which became a prison. Who's ever seen um, the, the Return of the Titans? Surely some of us have seen that movie. And there you have Tartarus. It was a prison for literally the Greek gods who'd been naughty. Okay? And Peter borrows that and likens it to what God will do with demonic forces. The whole concept is God's power over harmful forces. But interestingly, again, there's another context. Peter says that's the context of it. And just be careful that if you, don't, if you live destructive lifestyles that destroy others, you could end up there too. Again, it's tied to the way that we behave and what happens to people around us. Both our compassion towards those in need and the needs of humanity, even people, yes, who've done the wrong thing. In Jesus' context, it's you didn't visit me in prison. Okay? So... So the whole thought is we have to have compassion towards human need and be careful you don't live your life in such a way that you destroy others. There's the context. Then we've got this word hades, which is used, depending on the, the, uh, the text that's used to translate, you know, there's a couple of different older, newer uh, fragments of scripture that are translated. And uh, depending on which one, up to six times hades is used. It's only translated as hell once, and it's where Jesus is talking to Lazarus, and uh, he, there's Lazarus and the, the rich man, and he tells this parable, and there's a gulf between them, and they are in this place uh, called hades which is like the Greek version of the Hebrew concept Sheol and it simply means the place of the departed or the grave. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not judgment, not, none of that, just this place where people go after they die. And Jesus tells a parable and sort of describes that place. So, you know, you can say Jesus certainly thought uh, that the, the grave and the being, being conscious while you're departed was a real thing. Certainly that's what, but he's not talking about literally, literally hell, in a sense. He's talking about the grave. And then this third word, Gehenna, which is borrowed directly from the Hebrew. Um, and this is the word that's used more times than anything else, than any other. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus uses it more. It's only found outside the Gospels twice. Uh, the book of James says that our tongue can be set on fire by Gehenna, an overflow of hell, and it can destroy others. And what James says, we destroy people created in the image of God with what we say. We can do that. And uh, the, the other passage, actually that is the only other passage. I was thinking 2 Peter 2.24. So it's all Jesus except for James. Okay? So the other 11 instances are all Jesus talking and most of them are in parallel concepts. So we're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at six of them because Jesus really only talks about it six times. So are you ready for that? Yes. Are you good? Yeah, okay. First thing we've got to understand, this concept of Gehenna was borrowed from Hebrews and it was a literal place in Jesus' day. Okay, we've got to just understand that, that this was the valley of Gehinnon which was on the south and the east of Jerusalem, and it was the city rubbish pit. It became the city rubbish pit when about 620 uh, BC, 
King Josiah, the child king, came to the throne at 16 years of age. By the time he was 18 years of age, he was having a full-on national revival and turning around the idolatry of both his father and his grandfather. Don't ever say that good things can't come out of difficult families, I'm telling you. So this kid broke all the moulds. He brings a national revival and they totally turned the nation around and one of the things they had to turn around was what had been occurring in that valley as the people of Israel had chased the gods of the nations around them and they were sacrificing children to a god in that valley. So it was a valley of child sacrifice and Josiah turned it from a pagan altar into the city rubbish pit as an example. Not only was the rubbish of the city thrown in there, but also the bodies of criminals, people who could not afford to be buried, uh, unknown people that you know had come to the city and died and, and were just thrown in there, and the carcasses of animals. They heaped sulphur in there and lit it and kept it burning perpetually to, of course, purify both the stench and the threat of disease. So there was this burning valley of fire outside of Jesus, outside of Jerusalem that everyone in the nation knew about. And Jesus uses this word and we translate it hell. Which helps you understand why some artists turn it into those kind of paintings. Um, But the problem was, uh, and especially for those who get a bit antsy about talking about heaven and hell and seeming to diminish some of this, if you are a literalist and you just go, I just believe every word of the Bible the way it says, well, then you'd better believe Jesus was talking about a rubbish pit, not about eternal separation from God. If you're a literalist in that literalist in that sense, are you still with me? Because we're about to dive into some scripture now, right? We're going to do six scriptures really quick, and then I'm going to ask you better questions than "Am I going to heaven or hell?" There are better questions. There are questions I think God would prefer us to be asking ourselves and our neighbours about eternity. And so let's, uh, let's just dive through everything Jesus said. As I said, these, uh, these scriptures overlap, so I've, I've condensed it. So in a couple of the Gospels, the same stories are told. I've just all condensed it down as simple as I can get it. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Who's ever thought, oh my goodness, I called someone a fool once. (laughs) Okay, so let's just have a really quick look at it. Anger, it doesn't connect anger completely to hell, but if you look at the flow of the verse, it's almost like it begins here and it ends there. You understand what I mean? So I've included it. And so here's... Do, do you want to know, I guess in a sense... Oh no, I'll get to there later. I'm just going to make the, make the points then I'll make the applications. You okay? Right here. So what's the problem? An angry disposition yes. is the problem. And also superiority because that's literally what those terms... Uh, whoever says you, you fool, calls his brother a fool, says rakar, uh, Greek progressive verbs 
It doesn't mean that you say it once. It means that your disposition is to look at people and continuously think less of them than you. Wow. I'm superior. I'm better. You're a fool. You're nothing but a fool. You're an, Raka means idiot, literally. You're an idiot. And if you live like, in a sense, Jesus was saying, if you live life with a mindset that looks down on others and sees yourself as superior, you will turn your life into a rubbish pit. A smoking, stinking, smouldering mess where the dogs fight over the scraps, where the teeth are barred. There's some of the images that Jesus uses. Where the worm does not die in the corpse and the fire is not quenched because they'll heap fresh sulphur there every day. And where there is gnashing of teeth. Come on, have we heard these images? Isn't it interesting? Jesus was talking about a real place. Not just a subjective place, but what he was likening it to is just as powerful. Be careful the way that you live or you might just destroy your own life. And so we have this application, angry disposition, superiority, which, you know, if you look at that, that's the foundation of racism and discrimination of all kinds. So who agrees that Jesus' teaching on hell was awesome? We don't want any of that. Matthew chapter 5 verse 29, and it's repeated literally in, ver- in uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 18 of Matthew. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. <laughs> okay, come on, who's ever been just tempted? Like, can bor- I want to borrow a biro for a second. No, no, I don't. No, I mean, that is ghastly. That is, gar- that is really ghastly. And of course he's talking about lust. The inordinate desire or craving, often for something that you shouldn't have. Lust. Jesus is saying, you are better off. That thing will lead your life to the pit. That will do, come on, and many people in our society would know that to be true. And even sitting here today, you'd be sitting nodding on the inside saying, oh my goodness, how true is that? Especially with the internet. How true is that? You will turn your life into a stinking mess if you let that. You are better off, Jesus using hyperbole, but you're better off plucking your own eye out, how extreme is that, than allowing your life to become a pit. Matthew 5, verse 30. And if your right hand, (laughs) just as, I mean, obviously the eye's got to come first because it'd be a bit hard to remove your own eye with just one hand, I guess. But if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable, etc., etc. Then you be cast into hell. So he's talking about sinful actions. Simply being driven by fleshly desire to the point where you do the wrong thing. And again, he's using this hyperbole to make a point. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. And do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. And what Jesus is referring to is man-pleasing. Living to please the expectation of people rather than God. That will destroy... Come on, who knows someone 
who maybe had, I, I see it all the time, I guess on a church level, I see people have a future and have a destiny, have a calling, have an anointing on their life and, uh, and you just think, wow, they've just got so much ahead of them but because of pressure around them, they never ever become what they could so easily have become. And Jesus said, you, you'll just mess your life up if you're not prepared to put God first. He put it another way in other places like seek first the kingdom of God all these things will be added to you. Don't turn your life into a disappointing pit. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Uh, this is a good one. Religion. <laughs> and by that, I mean... Uh, Man's attempt to reach God, not, you know, the Bible says there's only one pure and undefiled religion and that's to help widows and orphans. So there is such a thing as good religion and that's it. And again, interestingly, it's all in the context of extending a hand to needy mankind. So are you sensing a theme here, (laughs) a theme in Jesus' teaching? And so this is an abstract observation rather than direct a subject, but, but if I could put it this way, legalism... Fulfilling the rules and feeling happy that you are will actually turn your life to hell. Turn your life into a rubbish pit. Who's ever met a happy legalist? I've never seen a a legalist preach happy. You know what I mean? It's like they get up here. Well, they'd never get up here. I can tell you. If not, I'll crash tackle them off for you. But but honestly, they get up here and all of a sudden it's got to be serious about God. So, well, we do need to be serious about God, but don't be serious about yourself because you're very flawed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we do need to be serious about God, but let's not take ourselves seriously. Come on. I think God must laugh at us all the time. (laughs) Matthew chapter 23, last one. And again, he's aiming at religious folks. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? And the whole thought is that they're just two-faced. Living a false religious life that ignores the spirit and intent of God's word. Now, these are just my interpretations of it, but that's what I see in it. And Jesus is saying, you will turn your life into a stinky pit if you think that way, if you live that way, if you live angry. If you just live angry, don't, you will destroy your life and others around you. If, if you live superior, yeah. Yeah. if you live two-faced, if, if you live a, a, a self-contented religious life, you'll end up empty and consumed. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about in these verses that we so often hang over people's heads or dangle people over. To create a stick effect for obedience. And we shouldn't think about God the way that that we think. So there you have it. There's Jesus teaching hell. Everything. Everything Jesus taught on hell. And the bottom line is, you know, you'll make your life a rubbish pit. Feel the burn baby. You know, we talk about feel that burn baby. Physical exercise or whatever. That's actually closer... (laughs) to what Jesus was talking about than eternal separation from God in these passages. And everyone 
who's felt the burn, who's felt the stinky life, the smoky, the rotten life, you know it's true because you've experienced it on some level when you've experienced and done some of these things or you've experienced it on some level when someone has been like that to you. Anyone who's ever had relationship breakdown, anyone who's ever been, been slandered or bullied or condescended to or objectified, you know the burn. And it doesn't just touch the person doing it, you experience it as well. If we interpret every instance of hell in the Bible on one level, eternal separation from God, then it seems like God is not into forgiveness as much as retribution. If you broaden your understanding of the word, then suddenly you realise that eternal separation, although a definite possibility, is not the main event. The impact of the way we live presently in our lives and others is the main event. So far from throwing lightning bolts of destruction at people and judging them harshly for certain behaviours, the great bulk of Jesus' teaching about hell was a loving heads up not to live in such a way that turned life into a horror for yourself and others. And don't set yourself on a trajectory at odds with God's presence. Instead of one dimensional in and out, you're either in or you're out, heaven or hell, kind of thinking. The Bible urges us to have a lifestyle that reflects our true beliefs as a trajectory of our future experience. uh, So so I'm I'm not taking eternal separation off the table, that's in scripture. But the great bulk of, script, of, of teaching in scripture is more about how are you on the right trajectory? That's how we talked about heaven, remember? Yeah. Don't wait to go to heaven one day. Thy will be done on earth. Alam yeah. haba. The whole concept of shalom, God's peace coming and reigning on earth among us. Right. Right. So just broadening it out. And, and hell, don't just write it off. Well, one, someday I might have to deal with it. Now, as a matter of fact, if you're not aware of it, you might already be dealing with it and not realise it. And you're wondering why your relationships have gone to CRAP and you're wondering why other things in your life aren't working. You're wondering why people don't like you and you're wondering why people are backstabbing you back. And it just might be that you've actually begun to turn your life into a rubbish pit. And Jesus would say, look, run away from that stuff. So here's some better questions than are you going to hell or heaven? Who wants to know some better questions than that? Here's some better questions. If people around you would say you're an angry person, what are you doing to intentionally remap your thinking? That's a far better question. You have to transform your anger to basically to security. I mean, I don't know whether you realise it, but everything from bullying to wife beating, every angry outburst, it's just insecurity for whatever's happened. And I'm sorry for what's happened to you, but you can't let whatever's happened to you to make you that way. You can't let it turn the rest of your life into a rubbish pit. You have to think about how, what am I doing intentionally? If people around you, I say it that way because often if you're that person, you'll never recognise it in yourself, but people around you will. If you're that person, hey, what are you doing to intentionally remap your thinking? 
I can't afford to think this way. I will not, I refuse to turn any more of my life into a rubbish pit for myself or for those around me. Another question is, if you at times perceive certain people as lesser, inferior or detestable, what are you doing to develop empathy and compassion toward them? That's a far better question, don't you think? Am I going to heaven or hell? Have I got my ticket? No, no, no. Uh, are you changing and being transformed into the image of Christ here? I thought that's what it was all about. Isn't, isn't that what Paul... That is the only... You know, people talk about, you know, what's the purpose of God in my life? I can tell you what the purpose of God is, that you be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah. That's it. And everything in our journey is about that. So... Uh, if people around you sense that you're angry or if you have trouble with the way you see people, um, I think a bigger question is, do you even realise that you're doing that, seeing them as less? Or is your life slipping into a pit? Another question, where do you allow your cravings to take your mind? Do you allow yourself the the luxury your soul can't afford Jesus would say do you allow yourself to crave things that you should not have so for example do you find yourself regularly objectifying people you see mentally rating their outward attributes even undressing them with your eyes how would the mental images change if you saw instead the image of God within them, their true value? That's a better question than am I in or out? That's a better question. Are you able to say enough or does greed always have you grabbing for more? Can you be simply content? When I have to make tough decisions, is honouring God my first priority? Am I proud of my own efforts to please God or simply thankful his grace is enough? Are you something different in public to what you are in private? Because if so, that's, that's an integrity gap that hell can seep into your life through. And finally, and I guess the bottom line, what are you bringing into your world? into the marketplace, into your family, into your school, into uni, into your friendship circles? Are you bringing heaven or are you bringing hell? It's interesting, you know, we're all environmentally conscious these days, I hope. Aren't we? Remember, it's God's garden. It's okay. It's okay to be green. You just don't need to be political about it. We're so environmentally conscious and I think what Jesus was saying in those passages more than anything was be spiritually environmentally conscious. Be very conscious of your effect on your environment. Be very conscious of the environment's effect of you. Make sure that just because God created you in his image you don't return the favour and create him and create everything he talks about in your image and an image that suits you. Be careful of the imaginations we have. Uh, I hope you still love me. Yeah. <laughs> you okay? 
Doing okay? Yes. If you still love me, let me pray for you. Why don't we all stand together? Man, I hope some of that's been challenging, liberating, encouraging, motivating, in a good kind of way, in a carrot kind of way. just reach out to God just reach out to God come on if we need to change our thinking let's believe that God can show us how right now how right now Father we want to live lives that honour you that honour you and that bring you into every situation we're a part of that bring heaven into every situation in our families in our workplaces in our friendships in in everything that concerns us we want to to bring your presence and your goodness and your hope and your peace into every situation. Jesus, you said that we would be lights of the world and lights in this world. Help us. Help us penetrate the darkness with hope, with love, with joy and with the peace that you put in us. Help us live in a way that reflects what we believe about the future. Help us be on a trajectory that honours you and leads to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we just keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed just for a moment? You know, just in this last moment of the service, uh, a lot of people here this morning, and, and I don't know everyone, I don't know your journey, but God does. And he loves you right where you're at, no matter where that is. You know, you might might say that church is not my thing, God is not my thing. Um, friend, I just want to tell you, God loves you right where you are and right where you're at. And, and as you've been here this morning, and maybe some of the things I've said have changed your perception, have, have moved you a degree in the way that you think, and you'd say that your heart is open to God this morning, then I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ this morning. He loves you. He loves you. He's got a purpose for your life. And you can take a step towards that. You can open your heart to him today. Simply ask Jesus to come into your life, begin to to lead you and make, make the changes and create the opportunities that you need in your life to go forward. So while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, friend, if you're here and you'd say, Pastor Chris, I... I need to meet Jesus this morning. I need to open my heart to him. You know that's where you're at in your journey. Would you just raise your hand right where you are? Just while every head's bowed, every eye's closed. Just in this moment. I'm not going to prolong it, but I really want to always give an opportunity. Every service, we give an opportunity. And if you're here, friend, you're amongst friends, you're amongst so many people who are on that same journey and have got to this point of decision. And I want to create the opportunity for you. If that's you, just raise your hand up right where you are. That's awesome. God bless you. That's fantastic. Yep, God bless you. You can put your hands down again. That's fantastic. Others, just really quickly, I won't, won't stay here too much longer. Others that just you just know this is your moment. This is your opportunity. This is right for you. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, you can look up at me again. Why don't we just encourage people who made that decision? <laughs> Got to tell you, best decision you'll ever make uh, to follow Jesus. Not always the easiest, but it is the best. 
Uh, and we're going to pray this prayer together. So the whole church, I'll ask you to pray with me. And if you respond, if I saw your hand, or maybe if I didn't, or even if you didn't get to that point, but you know that you want to open your heart to Jesus, then I encourage you, just use this very simple prayer. Pray it authentically, make it your own, and invite Jesus into your life. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for forgiving me. Come into my life, and I'll follow you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Go out and live awesome. Bring a little bit of heaven wherever you go. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.